0: It takes about a decade of work for a corpse flower to bloom in cultivation. The bloom itself lasts about 24 hours. On June 26th, about an hour before closing time, the New York Botanical Gardens closely watched corpse flower started to change shape. We took the four train from Brooklyn to the northeast corner of Belmont in the Bronx to catch the inflorescence at its peak.
1: Can you smell it now? You can
0: smell it now. Um, We actually came from Maine. We're down here visiting colleges and we just happened to visit this on the day that it was doing its thing
2: we were in the city anyway but we are visiting from iowa we're over by king's plaza on that side
1: minnesota and i'm from the outer banks north carolina we're from buffalo
2: and the one there already bloomed and we totally missed it so (laughs) we're from the bronx (laughs) so the plant will continue
0: storing energy for about seven to ten years and when the plant decides it will produce a flower there's no way to trigger it. it when it wants to My name is Mark Hatchadorian, and my title is the director of the Nolan Greenhouses at the New York Botanical Garden. Mark has been caring for this specific plant for seven years. Once the flower is open, it lasts only two to three days. The flower, in order to attract the pollinator, does a couple of different things. Not only does it smell like rotting flesh, it looks like rotting flesh,
1: and there's also
3: a chemical... This plant, when it was first found in western Java
0: was really, you know, just a bit of a botanical sensation. Get in
3: there and smell it. Get a big whiff.
0: I think the celebration of the grotesque behind it and that real horror movie aspect, that haunted house aspect, where they want to come, they want to see it, but more importantly, they want to smell it. They want to see what the smell of, you know, the, the smell of death, you know.
1: The name suits it, basically.
2: It really does smell like a dead corpse. The flies, the flies, they love it. it smelled a little bit like garbage, rotting meat. And I heard someone say it's getting worse.
3: <laughs> Ooh in the new world but the new york botanical garden was the first botanical garden to flower the plant and it was named the floral emblem of the bronx have
0: you been down to the botanical garden lately yeah down the street have you been over there to check out this flower oh stop here
2: uh, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't seen it, but uh, I saw it on TV. It looked kind of cool. It was that's, cool. All, that's all I can say about it. Yeah, I never even knew, this, such a thing, never knew such a thing existed.
3: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what? So you just came from the botanical
0: garden, and they have a thing there called the corpse flower. So I wonder if you heard about the corpse flower over at the garden. You no, know, this is the first time I'm being um, I made aware of it. Normally, I get up and I go to work. I'll be to work, but today I'm off early. But what is this corpse flows all about? Uh, We're doing a radio story about the corpse flower at the Botanical Garden. The what? The what? It's the most famous thing to hit the Bronx. Listen,
2: a young boy just died who was murdered. Like, I think my mind is on that more than something that's not saying is not essential, but there was a huge, I mean, everybody was at that funeral today.
0: A week prior, on June 20th, Fifteen-year-old Lissandro Guzman Feliz, or Junior, was murdered outside a bodega in Belmont. On the day the corpse flower reached peak bloom, hundreds of people gathered outside Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church to witness Junior's funeral procession and rally for justice. A bus ride away... People from all over the state and country were paying the standard $23 admission fee and filing into the climate-controlled Enid A. Hopped Conservatory.
1: Plants are everywhere. And how often do you get something that blooms every 10 years? And then it dies. It's carnivorous and parasitic.
0: This isn't my thing. I'm a political type guy. This is, the, you know, the earthy. Not, that's not me.
2: I like this shape. It's a, like a sculptor. I'm starting chemo
3: tomorrow, so I feel so lucky that I got to see this today. So it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to be doing, and I'm so positive about everything. It's just the fascination of it's something that doesn't happen every year. It's every seven to ten years, so it's it's amazing. You really aren't impressed. This isn't my
0: thing. Well, I see your camera phone out. This is my wife. (laughs) The museum is a massive educational resource, but it's also an oasis, 250 acres of undeveloped land in the middle of the Bronx. At its center, it's almost quiet, entering the conservatory is like stepping out of New York and into a different temperate zone. The museum is carefully tailored to support plant life from all over the world, and in many ways, that's the point of a museum to show people things they might never see otherwise. But what happens when people are excluded?
2: And so when I see people going to botanical gardens, I don't see people who are members of the community. I see a lot of people who are outside and gentrifying the community. There's white people coming from the Metro North. Let's keeping it real, keeping it facts. So- what, what's the I mean, barrier? they have a day that's free on Wednesday, but there's a barrier because people don't see themselves celebrating that's what I'm
0: flowers. What, what's the barrier to entry Because in the they don't make sense.
2: it as welcoming, warm, and welcoming. They have the food. Um, they they have the food farmers market, but even with that, that's still like you're kind of intruding on them in a sense, right? Because it's like they automatically know. Okay, EBT cards are taken. Like, oh gosh, and people can't think about flowers when they're trying to eat, when they're trying to pay rent that is exorbitantly high, when they're living five and six to a one bedroom apartment. So why am I going to go to see a flower?
3: Always, always the New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx. I'm from Brooklyn, born and raised, but I have family and friends that I visit in the Bronx, and it's it's pretty much always been that way. So my name is Stephanie Johnson Cunningham, I'm the co-founder and creative director of an organization called Museum Hue.
0: Museum Hue is an organization that advocates for people of color in the arts.
3: Like other cultural institutions, it's a white space, and for a lot of people it can seem like it wasn't necessarily a space for them, it wasn't inviting to them, and if it was, it felt sometimes pandering. You know, the institution is just, like, inviting them into the space and not really forming a relationship.
0: This summer, Stephanie Johnson Cunningham wrote an article for Museums and Social Issues outlining five steps museums should take to center communities and cultivate social
3: change. To decolonize the space, especially like a museum, I think one thing cultural institutions have to do is be honest with their history. Recently, National Geographic came out with a publication around race and was very honest about the history of their institution, how it was created, how it was very racist and sexist. And so they have to become more forward-facing with their activism. Our
2: action today is in solidarity with the Lenape. Our Our action today is in solidarity
0: In the past few years, actions have been springing up all over the city, calling for museums and cultural institutions to stop thinking of themselves as apolitical. In April, over 60 protesters from 20 community groups rallied at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden and Brooklyn Museum to demand a deep diversification of staff, a commitment to mitigate gentrification, and an acknowledgement of the full history of the land both institutions were built on.
1: We stand with our comrades
2: to advance indigenous resurgence to To advance advance indigenous resurgence and fight for decolonization.
3: And fight for decolonization.
2: This is where we must begin.
0: And while the New York Botanical Garden has never been protested on that scale, like the Brooklyn Museum and Brooklyn Botanic Garden, it sits on stolen Lenape land. In the 16 and 1700s, that land was divvied up and sold off to English and Dutch farmers and worked by enslaved people. The garden itself was built by Irish immigrants in the 1880s and opened to the public in 1896 the New York Botanical Garden doesn't currently acknowledge most of that history in their front-facing materials.
3: I think cultural institutions have to become very honest with the framework of what their cultural institution is built upon.
0: Another important step to welcoming in Bronx residents?
3: I think what they also have to do is to become more relevant to what's happening um, around them. You know, the gentrification, food deserts, the lack of green space when the Bronx, you know, has a lot of food deserts. The Brooklyn Botanical Garden and the New York Botanical Garden are green spaces that should also talk about, you know, the issue of, of the lack of green spaces.
1: I'm telling you, in the morning time, you come here, just watch us. You come in, I'll show you around. So this is the hot sauce, the Bronx hot sauce. So we just picked this morning all the Serrano peppers for the Bronx hot sauce. So. There are like around 12 community gardens that are growing Serrano peppers. And so, yeah, so we just picked them this morning. Well, I grew up in New York and had no ambition or even thought about gardening or food. My relationship to food was the fact that my mom was a good cook and we had three meals. So when I grew my first tomato on a vine, saw it was red and bit into it, it changed my world.
0: Karen Washington is a community gardener and activist.
1: And I tell people I grow food, I feed people body and mind and I've been growing food in New York City for over 30 years.
0: She's been working with the NYBG almost as long as she's been living in the Bronx. Today, she's a board member.
1: So when I first moved to the Bronx, from all information that I knew about the Botanical Garden, it catered to mostly affluent people. I didn't hear from neighbors or heard on the street that people were going to the to the New York Botanical Gardens, and it seemed more elitist. But that sort of changed in 1985. So yesterday was our farmer's market, so we bring the residue of what we got to farmer's market to feed the chickens. So the one is out, so I looked out my window, and there was a man with a shovel and a pick, and he said, well, I want to start a community garden. And then the next day, this
0: green truck pulls up and it says Bronx Green Up. Bronx Green Up is the community gardening outreach arm of the NYBG. It was born out of volunteer neighborhood efforts in the 1970s and 80s to beautify empty lots.
1: The city was going through you know, financial crisis. They really didn't have enough money to do a lot of uh, development, especially in low-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color, so it was the community got together and turn these empty lots into community gardens. And one thing that the New York Botanical Garden provided was a lot of resources. So the trees and the shrubs that you see in many of the Bronx Gardens came from the Botanical Gardens, the native plants. But, uh, and so this is That's like, this is Papalo. If you, it's just like uh... So the Garden of Happiness um, was, once a, was once an empty lot. It's three quarters of an acre it's close walking distance to the Bronx Zoo and then Neuro Botanical Garden. It originally started with African American and Puerto Ricans, and as they retired and moved on, the next wave were Dominicans. And now, for the last, I would say, 15, 20 years, it's Mexican. Now I know about Papalo, Papiche, epizote, Tomatillas. Um, and so they get a chance to know a lot about Collins and Kale and
0: Callaloo. Karen Washington gives Bronx Green up a lot of credit. But she knows that the garden has a long way to go if they're serious about reaching out to the Bronx community.
1: There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect really to not only the food, but just plants and flowers in general. Um, And so that's why these community gardens are so important. Because if you don't have access or time to go to the New York Botanical Garden or the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You have these small, tiny oases right in your backyard that you can go out and visit. And just to make people know that community gardens are open to the public, they are free. To be able to speak out and speak up for these spaces, so maintaining spaces continues to be an act of
2: activism. Then you understand? I mean, I'm just being real with everything that's happening. People are not really thinking about flowers here. I'm sorry. So that's all I have to say. So
0: you, I'm sorry, you taking me way down the path and I understand if you have to go or whatever. Mm-hmm. So this flower is like an ambassador mm-hmm. for the Bronx to the world. Mm-hmm. But what would you have someone who came from as far as Australia to see this flower know about the community surrounds it.
2: My thing is, they won't really care. They'll think hip-hop, botanical gardens, and the Bronx Zoo. They won't really care. They're not going to do the research. You understand? I'm just being real. Yeah, Okay. share okay. your name with me. Uh, Brian. Bar. Let's put it that way. Okay. Bar. bar. Mm-hmm. Nice talking to you guys. Thank you.
1: Well, believe it or not, um, a lot of people think of the Bronx still burning I just want people to make sure that they understand that the Bronx is thriving, is a vibrant community. People think because I'm a food activist that I'm from Brooklyn, but I have to remind them, no. I'm from the Boogie Down Bronx and I'm proud of it.